I want you to hold out your hands. Would you do that with me? If you're listening to the podcast uh, while you're driving, try maybe just one hand or think with me just for safety, right? But in, in the one hand, I want you to just put the natural life, the day-to-day life, the business and pleasure, the ups and downs, the family and friends, tragedy and, and comedy of your life, your past events that have made you, and your goals and dreams for who you want to become, okay? Just your life, your world, your story. I just want you to hold that in your hand. You don't have to squeeze it particularly tight, but just I want you to kind of have that in in this hand. In the other hand, I want you to hold what you believe and what we understand about the supernatural, okay? We've got in this hand, Almighty God the Father, Jesus the Messiah, resurrected from the dead and on the throne, Lord of the world. The Holy Spirit sent to fill and empower and guide his people. And and the angels, right? Add those in who God sends as messengers and helpers to protect and serve his people. Um, Add in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. I want you to hold these two together. In this hand, you've got your world, your story. And in this hand... God's world, God's story, his story, okay? So you've got your hands full, right? So how do these fit together? What does the one have to do with the other? In the one hand, you've got just the facts. And in the other hand, you've got divine power and forces we cannot see. You know what I mean? You've got the, I can see and feel and touch. I've experienced this in every way. And over here, it's divine power and forces we cannot see. And in our culture, we have a really hard time putting these together, don't we? We've chosen what some have called a disenchanted world. Disenchanted. There's no enchantment. There's no other thing going on in the divine world. No forces other than my own, my own will, and my own decisions. I've been recently rebuked for suggesting that someone's dark and sinister decisions, the thoughts that were crowding through their head, were being influenced by dark and sinister forces, right? Like, no, these are mine. I'm choosing this. I'm the one making the decision. These are my dark thoughts, and I want them. <laughs> um, wow, nothing. the spiritual world has nothing to do with that? We, we kind of take this idea in our culture at least that stuff happens there's no meaning in it it's just stuff it's just random it's just material and and we have a hard time putting these things together but it wasn't this way for the ancients Uh, they tried their best all the time to put these together but they were very scattered in their approach to understanding the signs what does it mean what what are we supposed to do the gods could send contradictory signs you know, you're, you've got your, your priest examining the sheep's liver that says your crops are going to succeed, but then the chicken liver might say they're going to fail. Well, better try again, but it'll, it'll cost you. We're going to need to, we're gonna need to uh, have a little more money involved here, more, more sacrifice. Curiously, in our secular age, when we say, you know, stuff happens, there's no meaning, At the same time, we love the ancient stories. Uh, What psychologists call cognitive dissonance. I'm holding these two kind of, these two worlds together. It's kind of stunning. 
just the facts, ma'am. I just want the facts. And also tell me the enchanted ancient stories. Our culture is eating up enchanted movies and books. Our movies are full of superheroes, gods and goddesses, ghosts and goblins, witches and warlocks, full of enchantment with horror and wonder about what lies beyond. Right? It's, it's almost in, in everything that we see. But then we straighten up and say, no more of that. My life is self-directed and self-determined. I am my own creator and I make the rules. That's, we hear that a lot. And then in our conversations in the, in the public space, take on an enlightened air, you know? There, there's nothing to make of the myths, the enchanted supernatural world. They're just tall tales. But do, do please keep telling them, right? We have this interesting mixture. My claim is that our disenchanted Western world wants history without interpretation. Just the facts, right? Just the camera footage, please. The last thing people want to hear about, at least in the public space, is how God fits into all of the facts, right? You know, you've got to leave that out of it. Leave out that interpretation, how God operates in our world. No, I, I don't think we can handle that. How heaven is closer to earth than we have imagined. But, but I do think that's changing. Uh, I see it in conversations. I see it as our world is seeking meaning beyond just the facts. Right? So how do we interpret this? But what really does go on in the afterlife or this, this metaphysics? And, and there, there are people wondering, and I do believe there's an open door here. Here at the end of Acts chapter 12, Luke is closing out the first half of the book of Acts, but should really be called the book of the, the Acts of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. And we have the dramatic death of a despotic king. And Luke gives us an enchanted reading, or, or maybe you've already offended by me saying enchanted, so let's just use the word theocentric reading, a God-centered reading of these events. The, the declaration that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord of all, and that freedom, forgiveness, freedom from exile is available, is heading out from Jerusalem into the rest of the world. The gospel now outflanks the Jerusalem powers, the Herodian regime, the temple hierarchy. It's creating a new civic and political reality. It's becoming a, a people, this, this movement, with a new allegiance to a new kind of king. And it is now expanding outside of these other structures. It's, it really is a new people emerging from oppression, from persecution, an, an exodus with all... With, with all that the book of Exodus and the, the history of the, the event of Exodus means. They're, they're a new people emerging. We have a new heaven-earth reality. The, 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 your story and God's story coming together, the, the molding of the two, shaped around a new temple, which is the body of Christ. Right? The tabernacle in the wilderness coming out of Exodus is now the body of Christ going through the wilderness in search of our final homeland, the kingdom of God. So it's really a new exodus. And this Herod story in chapter 12 is actually framed by Luke during what event? The Passover, right? Which is the exodus of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And the parallels in this Herod story are very clear. 
Dean Pinter offers this. When a king who imagines himself a god kills and imprisons God's people, they are delivered from the clutches of a boastful ruler, and the angel of the Lord strikes with deadly force. That's, <laughs> that's the story of Acts chapter 12, and yes, that is the Exodus story. Of an imprisoned people, a boastful ruler, angel of the Lord, deadly force. So let me read this to you. Acts chapter 12, 19 through 21. And after Herod searched for Peter and did not find him, this Herod Agrippa I examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Right, this crowd may have actually gathered to flatter Herod and make him seem like he was more than he really was, to, to make him happy. Right? And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. You can see here Herod's uh, terrain um, included much of what we call uh, modern-day Palestine. And, um, and Tyre and Sidon were reliant upon him during, um, during famine, but, but also during regular times for crops. And this Herod had a charmed life, an auspicious life, growing up in Rome with the elite. He, he was befriended by emperors, given land and titles and riches. And people are looking to him for wisdom and praying to the gods for his safety. If you transplanted him to the United States of America, he'd be a modern-day superstar influencer, right? He's been given all this stuff. He's been given a following, and, and off he goes, right? He's reaching for the stars, determining his destiny. Oh, it's very American. And becoming a star himself, like an actual like divine star. Herod actually sets the scene and loads it with stage magic to present himself to get the most likes, the most subscribers, follows, shares possible. He is shooting for the stars, shooting for divinity. Now, Luke wasn't the only historian to record this incident in AD 44, and that's where I'm bringing in some of this other uh, elements here. It's actually from Josephus. He was born Joseph, son of Matthias born a few years after the resurrection, later became a military officer and historian, and was captured in the war against Rome, but became a friend of the emperor Vespasian. And he was given Roman citizenship and a new name in AD 71. He was named Titus Flavius Josephus. And he records how Herod Agrippa I staged this performance in Caesar's town, says Caesarea, right? that left his audience stunned and honoring him as a god. Luke mentions right, the oration and the royal robes, but Josephus fills out this picture. Um, this is in, in Caesarea. Herod, and here's the quote, exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety. So someone's going to, they're going to gather and do a party for me and make vows for your, for my safety. So it says, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout his province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver 
and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Sorry, I'm sorry, be merciful to us. We thought you were just a normal king. You're obviously beyond that. In Luke's words, he says this, and all the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. In Luke's words, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. Acts 12, 22 through 25 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It just closes this scene down with, And he's gone, but the word of God is living forever, increasing and multiplied. So Luke is highlighting God's involvement in the story, right? The, just the facts... And, whoa, God is actually at work in the midst of this. He's bringing an enchanted view, a theocentric view of what happened, right? Uh, the angel of the Lord. That's his theocentric interpretation of the events. Uh, Josephus had an enchanted view as well, um, but he actually has this. He has Herod looking up and seeing an owl sitting on a rope on the stage. And Josephus has him internalize this as a bad omen. And the owl, in the past, an, an owl had brought him a message of deliverance from prison. That was a, that was a, a sign he got in the, in the past. And he was like, oh, I'm going to be delivered. And now he sees this owl as an omen that says, I am going to be um, destroyed. And so he, he's... He's shown by Josephus to be internalizing this grief, this bad omen, and his doom is sealed from the inside out. What is that about? Birds and omens and, and all this kind of stuff, this enchanted view of the world. Luke's view is the angel of the Lord took him down. Josephus says um, he saw the bad omen, probably internalized that grief, and died so we have the facts, but we have a different, different telling of them. So let me just give you a little bit of historical background. Bird watching was a big deal and it was thoroughly enchanted in the ancient world. Birds, birds were mean, very meaningful. Flying birds were considered messengers of the gods since they fly about in the heavens, right? And this was actually used to settle major arguments, to establish cities, start wars, place kings on thrones. An augur, A-U-G-U-R, a priest, was a reader of omens. He would look at the birds to determine if the gods were giving a favorable sign. Okay, he would, he would, they would mark off a section. Okay, we're going to look here, and we're going to count the birds, and we're going to find out. And, and, they would, and then he would determine if the gods were giving a favorable sign. This could be uh, manipulated, and was many times in the ancient world. Uh, but a bird watcher was known as, a, or is called an auspex in, in, in Latin, avis and spicari auspex. 
And the signs were known as auspicium. And the augur would tell you if the omen they saw was auspicious or inauspicious. Maybe you've heard those words. And so the installation of a new king would be overseen by a priest, uh, an augur. And if the signs were favorable, it would be concluded that the kingship was inaugurated. Right? That's how it would be done. So the priest would say, okay, obviously the gods are favorable for this because we have used all the different signs, including auspects, <laughs> auspicious. Everything is auspicious, so you can be inaugurated. There, you have a little understanding about uh, Latin words <laughs> and the origins of words you've maybe used but didn't understand. No extra charge for that. Um, in fact, you know, this, this enchanted view of the world and uh, was taken uh, was, was taken seriously by most everybody, but um, perhaps you know Monty Python took a swipe at this, uh, the notion of enchanted auspices, uh, the legend of the transfer of Excalibur, right, from the Lady of the Lake to King Arthur, is uh, is just slapped at by by Monty Python. Remember. Uh, the line, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. We know that in the past, this is the way the auspicious um, king would be inaugurated, right? The signs would be good. We have here um, from Josephus that Herod fell into the deepest sorrow, and a severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And he actually confessed that he had, to, to the crowd, according to Josephus, that he had reached too far and that God had brought him low, but, but he'd lived the charmed, enchanted life anyway. But the theocentric version of this is clearly the angel of the Lord struck him down, he died of worms, and so we have competing stories. Just the facts... And then how do those get interpreted, right? Tom Wright kind of sums up this, uh, and he says, The official king of the Jews plays at being a pagan princeling, you know, a, a, a prince of the nations, you know, getting worship from the nations, and comes to a bad end. Meanwhile, the word of God grows and multiplies. You couldn't say it much clearer than that. Because it was common for the rulers of the Gentiles to claim to be sons of, of a god, but Herod should know better because he's dealing with the God of Israel, the creator of, of all. And where does true ultimate power lie? With Jesus, the word. So Herod was struck down and the word of God increased. Herod had just the one handful, the one about his story, his destiny, his glory. And his story ended right there because he did not give God the glory. Here's one line that, that may, may help you. When you swallow the glory, it eats you from the inside out. If you are going to take the American story and the quest for glory, and you're going to swallow it whole. When you swallow the glory, it eats you from the inside out. America needs to hear this. Glory and honor isn't what you think it is. Luke is showing us that the glory of God is recognized in humility and repentance not received in flattery and boastfulness. We're on the wrong track, right? Repentance and forgiveness of sins, however, is available through Jesus the Messiah. 
So America, you may be on the wrong track, swallowing glory whole, but it's going to eat you from the inside out. But Jesus is here to rescue even you. Uh, an, an exodus from, from that slavery to um, human glory and our, our, our just collapsed nature around our own story. Because it's difficult to hold our story and God's story separately. It doesn't actually make sense, and it's going to ruin us. In fact, we live in God's world, right? Jesus actually says you could gain the whole world, gain the whole world, and lose your soul. That's what happened to Herod there. My story, in my hand, even if I could put them together and have God's view of my story. It's not safe in my own hands. So think about this. My story is only safe and only makes sense in God's hands. So I'm not going to try to put God into my story. Actually, it's not just about a God-centered view. It's about his world holding my story because this is his story, history, his story after all. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, Two things. Uh, one is just receive true wisdom, right? You're not reading the signs. You're not reading the horoscopes. You're not looking to all these other things. Wow, you're actually just looking to God. Where can we find true wisdom in the face of Jesus? James, Jesus' brother, in his letter, James 1, 5 through 8, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's like reading sheep's livers and, and chicken livers and watching the birds and trying to figure out our lives. Go to the source of true wisdom and receive it. We'll see in the second half of Acts how the announcement of King Jesus, the God-man and mediator, will bring light and life to the confused worshipers of gods and spirits, the ones who are unstable, tossed back and forth. Instead of receiving true wisdom, Jesus will be declared, will be seen to be the source of wisdom and the subject of worship. That's Jesus. The name of Jesus will be elevated above the omens and the confusing and contradictory worship of the gods and, and the spirits. They will lay those things down so that they can receive truth from Jesus. The new temple space, the place to accomplish all of our worship, is the body of Christ. His people are called the body of Christ. And the singular focus on the preeminent Jesus will cast down all other idols. So if you're wondering, okay, I want to seek wisdom, I want to act in faith, well, faith is allegiance. So you keep your eyes on Jesus and you stay allegiant to him, and as you focus your eyes on the preeminent Jesus, these other idols will be cast down. Allegiance to Jesus overall. You are the source of true wisdom. I want you and you alone. Okay, receive true wisdom. The next thing is, uh, just a phrase I made up a few years ago, keep it mythical. I want you just to keep it mythical, my friends. In literature, <clears throat> a myth is a story that weaves in divine intervention. Oftentimes we think of the word myth and think that it's just, oh, it's just something made up. No, it's, it's a story 
with an interpretation that includes divine intervention. Myth is a story with the divine hand exposed. Oh, so that's what happened, right? And there's all sorts of myths. We actually happen to believe the myth that is true. The one where it wasn't just a Galilean peasant, it was the son of God. Right? And that's the interpretation. So think about this. What are some ways that we tell our story of just how the last yesterday went or how this last week went? Um, how it's been going in our career or in our life or in our family, but we hide the influence about what God is up to. Because, well, everybody expects me to hide this part of the story about what God is up to. We're timid about miracles and telling our story with God's influence wrapped in it. We're, we're, we have a hard time telling those stories. We sometimes tell those stories in the house and, and amongst one another, but it's very different among our friends who don't believe in Jesus. Well, church, can we just settle into this? We are stuck with the supernatural. <laughs> Even if you tried to say, well, the, the miracle and the angel of the Lord and the worms, and I don't know, I don't know if it's that... I don't know about the healing things. Even if you tried to avoid the miracles, which are clearly presented by Luke, our salvation is based on the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. That's pretty supernatural. And so I think we just need to sit with our story a bit and see God's interaction and be able to talk about that. In fact, see our story as just a little part of his story. Dean Pinter records that when the pre-Christian C.S. Lewis struggled to reconcile his vivid imagination fueled by the fairy tale world of his favorite author, George MacDonald, and he tried to put that, uh, that, that fairy tale world with his own cold scientific materialism, he turned to his devout friend J.R.R. Tolkien. One evening in 1931, as the two strolled the gardens of Magdalen College in Oxford, Tolkien explained to Lewis how the two sides could be reconciled in the Christian account, in which God took on human flesh and entered his own story. This is the moment when the world became enchanted for Lewis, as the transcendent touched the material and enchanted Lewis's world. So may we continue to be enchanted by Christ, and the Lord's angelic host, who visit humans, announce God's word, and deliver saints from corrupt power. So remember, just a couple takeaways today, and, and whatever else the Spirit is telling you that you need to resolve with Him. Uh, I don't ever want to get in the way of what the Spirit's telling you. Write that down. But receive true wisdom, right, directly from the source. And as it relates to your story, Keep it wrapped up in God's story. Or in other words, keep it mythical, my dudes. <laughs>